Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight, we're going to learn about Appleton Oaksmith. Who was Appleton Oaksmith? He's sort of the Forrest Gump of the illegal slave trade in the 19th century, except that maybe he wasn't a slave trader at all. His mother, who no one listening to the show has ever heard of, was once the most well-known woman writer in America. There's no way to introduce it except to hear the story itself that's told in the book called Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. It's written by Jonathan W. White. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University. I'm going to stand up and look out the window right now. And yes, it's it's raining. It's uh, September 2023, 7 o'clock at night, and it's often raining at this time. And I'm looking at the remarkable construction going on here in the Brewster Building Courtyard. Brewster consists of four separate wings connected by... Uh, outdoor stairwells. They were originally supposed to be enclosed stairwells, according to uh, a graduate student who did some research on the history of the building, but they thought they'd save money by leaving out the windows. And the result is the stairs are continually cracked and damaged by the weather. They're not meant to be outdoors. Anyway, there's four wings, and in the middle has been for 20 years this horrible bare cement courtyard in which no one ever sits down or has a pleasant moment. It's completely wasted space. And now it's been completely redone, and I'm looking at it. It looks like a sort of circular cement uh, path is being built, possibly a rollerball 
uh, track is being laid in there. For those of you who remember that movie from the 1970s, that would be that would be strange if that's what they're doing. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not speaking for the construction company or for Brewster or the ECU or anything else, just myself. And our guest, as always, speaks only for himself, not his institution or anything else. It is September 2023. This is uh, still feels like a new academic season, uh, a new football season, whereas my alma mater, Michigan, is rolling along uh, here in Greenville. The Pirates had a very disappointing game last Saturday. Rained. We had a weather delay of an hour and a half. It felt like I had to sit through that. Um, not not good at all. The uh, the other football team, the women's soccer team, is looking pretty good, though, so we'll, we'll stick with that. It's otherwise been a good semester here, I will say. The uh, the students I have and the two courses I'm teaching are, are uh, for the most part, motivated, doing their work, contributing in class. It, it's been a, a good group uh, in both classes. And it's nice having two classes to teach. Normally, uh, the teaching load here is supposed to be 3-2, but I end up doing three classes most semesters. And two is a real improvement. Um, the problem with telling anyone that outside academia is they think, oh, you, you teach two classes a week. You do two hours of work a week. Good for you. Um, well, of course, that would be like saying NFL players have it easier than I do. They only work 60 minutes a week. Uh, and then they would just lie around for six days until football afternoon. And, of course, we all know it's not true. They They practice and lift weights and do all kinds of things for – six days to get ready for the one performance. And uh, as a professor, we kind of do the same thing, not quite on the intense level of uh, professional athletes maybe, but for every hour in class, there are multiple hours out of class preparing uh, beforehand and grading afterwards. So it really, it does add up. But two is, is way better than three. I'm using some of my spare time to serve as an alternate delegate to the University of North Carolina System Faculty Assembly. That's all the schools in North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill and NC State and Wilmington uh, and all the others. Uh, have We have a central faculty senate or assembly that meets. And I volunteered to be an alternate delegate. So I went to the first online orientation session. And wow, the people who are involved in this uh, have really are really into it. They they just could not stop saying what a great thing it is to serve and how you get to meet people from all over. And if I liked people, that would probably be a good thing. But um, I, I'm happy to be an alternate, and we'll see if I have to actually go to one of these meetings. Uh, I do like people who are on Civil War Talk Radio, and we have some excellent ones coming up. Next week, uh, September 20th, our guest will be D. Scott Hartwig, and his new book just came in. I, I've just heard it's available for me. I have to go pick it up after this show. And I may want to bring one of those construction uh, uh, vehicles out in the courtyard with me to lift it. Uh, it's a big book called I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. And uh, very much looking forward to reading as much as I can in the week ahead and talking about it. And if you're anywhere near Antietam, 
this Saturday, September 23rd, uh, Scott will be leading a tour of the battlefield through the Gettysburg uh, Civil War Institute. Uh, contact Gettysburg College, find out how to be part of that if you're interested. And our last show of the month, September 27th, Manoa Uffelman will be our guest talking about her book, The Civil War Letters of Sarah Kennedy, Life Under Occupation in the Upper South. And she has two other books uh, also dealing with uh, civilians in uh, in the Civil War era, uh, letters, collections, and other primary documents. We'll talk with her about all of those. You can find out who else is going to be on in October. We've got the schedule posted up through November, in, even into December. If you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, that is where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date and where you can push the PayPal button and contribute to Civil War Talk Radio, to the books and bourbon and whatever else I'm collecting at the moment fund. Uh, there are so many interesting books coming out, and, and often publishers will send them to me. And then often I'll read a book, I would say often during the summer I'll read a book that's I'll say it quietly, not about the Civil War uh, once in a while. And and your donations can be used to purchase those too. Or the refreshing beverages that accompany while I'm reading. Uh, or maybe a new cordless vacuum cleaner. Uh, suddenly, my wife and I have bees in each of our bonnets that we need to get a cordless vacuum cleaner. Uh, so bourbon books vacuum cleaner fund this month only at www.impedimentsofwar.org well tonight we are welcoming back to the show uh for the i was going to say 14th time but i think it's the fourth time uh jonathan w white uh, john are you there i am thank you so much for having me uh welcome back to the show it is uh your your prolific production has, has caused me to violate the five-year rule on your behalf. Uh, okay. Try not to have somebody on more often than once every five years, just to make room for all the new books that are coming out. But you keep coming up with these really interesting uh, topics that no one else has touched, and uh, I cannot resist reading them and, and asking you to come and chat about them. So, uh, So welcome back. Well, thank you. And I wanted to say, too, congratulations on your 20th year here. Ah, thank you. It, it's uh, it, it, the time has flown by, I, I will mm -hmm. say, and uh, I'm looking forward. To, I won't say 20 more; that would be ridiculous. But uh, uh, but but a, a few more at least, enjoying yeah. it still. So let me start by uh, asking you a question about your status as editor of the venerable publication Lincoln Lore. Yeah, uh, that started by Lewis Warren at what was called the Lincoln Museum in, uh, actually the Lincoln Museum and Shrine was its first name, I believe, back in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana in the 1920s. And he published that for many years. Mark E. Neely Jr. Uh, did so. Gerald McMurtry was the editor for a while. Uh, I got to do it for a few years when I was at, in Fort Wayne. And now now you've taken up the mantle. Uh, how, tell us about uh, what, what's in the future for Lincoln lore. 
Yeah, well, actually, you know, as you know, if your listeners are interested in hearing you interviewed or at least reading you interviewed instead of you doing the interviewing, you'll be in the next issue, which I'm very, very excited about. It just went to the printer. Um, it's a lot of fun to edit it because you get to do articles that are about 4,000 words. So they're not as long as a scholarly academic article, but they're long enough for an author to be able to say something interesting. And so I've reached out to a lot of historians and people I know and have known for a long time and have solicited articles. So I've got some really good things coming. Gary W. Gallagher is going to write for me, Harold Holzer, mm. Ron White, your interview. Um, there's a lot of great things coming. Well, that that will be fun. I very much look forward to seeing that. Um, what is up with the uh, – well, Link, Lincoln Lore was the publication of the Lincoln Museum, and, and mm. long-time listeners know that the museum uh, very sadly was closed in, I think, 2008 uh, by its, uh, uh, it, its caretakers at Lincoln Financial Group. But the the – Museum spirit did not die. Well, t remind us what happened to the collection and, and where things are today. Yeah, so they have they split the collection and the 2D objects, so things like letters and photographs and prints, are still in Fort Wayne. They're at the Allen County Public Library, and they opened up a center recently called the Roland Center, and it's a center for research and then for tour tour groups to come in and school groups to do the sort of museum education thing. But most of what they have is 2D. And then the 3D objects were sent to Indianapolis. And so all of those sort of artifacts are there at either the state, I think it's the State Historical Society or the, no, the State Museum has them. Right. And so people can see those there. I had the pleasure of seeing the Roland Center for Lincoln Research this summer for the first time. Uh, uh, in, in July, I was on my way to Michigan for a family reunion. And I had not been back to, to Fort Wayne since I left there uh, you know, some 20 years ago, but especially after hearing about the, the Roland Center, and that's named for Ian Roland, the, uh, the former CEO of, of Lincoln Financial Group and a great supporter of the museum and its mission. And he it was only after his retirement that his craven successors uh, did away with the museum. Uh, but but Ian was a great friend of, of what we were trying to do there and, and a great benefactor. So uh, the Roland Center, is it, it's not like the museum. Folks, if you remember the old museum, it's not, you know, but I think we were like 20,000, 30,000 square feet. It's not like that. Uh, but it does show the collection in uh, uh, several rooms uh uh, of these letters and photographs and pictures and it, it's I, I was just so happy to see it still revived that, that, that the Lincoln Museum the Lincoln collection could not be kept down who is responsible for that so it's the friends of the Lincoln collection in conjunction with the Allen County Public Library. And I don't fully understand the, all of the relationship there. I'm actually the first editor of Lincoln Lore who's not based in Fort Wayne. So there's a little mm -hmm. bit of change there. Um, so I'm still sort of learning learning how it all works and who people are. But I, I have a sense that it's a partnership between the Friends of the Collection and the library. It, it's I think it's wonderful that the Friends, what had been the Friends of the Lincoln Museum, became the Friends of the Collection. And, and kept going, and, and are some people I still, uh, I, I think the treasurer got in touch with me, and 
uh, you know, someone I knew from from old Lincoln Museum days. The uh, and I had the the pleasure of talking to some of the staff there, the curators at the Allen County Public Library, who who are now the curators of the Ian Rowland uh, Research Center. The uh, uh, and and it's. They're professionals, and the the collection is in good hands, and that's just wonderful news. It is so, absolutely. So uh, I, I've gone on about this, but I, I feel strongly about that collection uh, surviving and Lincoln lore uh, thriving. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted that, uh, that you're going to be editing it going forward. But we are here to talk about Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. Um, let me start with the first question. How did you hear about this this fellow Appleton uh, Oaksmith, who who I had certainly never heard of before seeing this book? Yeah, so I did a book a few years ago called "To Address You as My Friend," and it collect it consists of letters from African Americans to Lincoln. And as I was collecting those letters, I was going through all the pardon records at the National Archives, and I was seeing a lot of slave trading pardon requests to Abraham Lincoln. So I started collecting those as well. And around 2015, I decided I was going to write a history of the slave trade during the Civil War. And I had a really talented graduate student, or sorry, undergraduate student who's now a lawyer. And I gave him a bunch of these names of slave traders. And I said, I want you to go into newspapers.com and other databases and, and see what you can find about them. And one day, my student, Daniel Glenn, came into my office and said, have you ever heard of Appleton Oaksmith? And I said, no. And he said, well, his name keeps coming up in a lot of these articles I'm finding. And that was actually how it all got started. I owe it to my student, Daniel, for finding Appleton. That's a great uh, Great encouragement for any undergraduates listening. We're going to take a short break, come back and find out about Appleton Oak Smith from our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White, author of Shipwrecked, A True Civil War Story of Mutinies, Jailbreaks, Blockade Running, and the Slave Trade. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.com. 
www.procopowice.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jonathan W. White, author of Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. There's an Oxford comma in that title. Uh, it is about Appleton Oaksmith, uh, Oaksmith whom I had not heard of. And uh, Jonathan, you mentioned you learned about him through an undergraduate doing research for you. This book, this story of, of Oaksmith is one – some weeks uh, – Last week, there we talked. I talked to an author who'd written about the Gettysburg campaign, and it had innovative illustrations. Listeners know what I'm talking about: uh, colorization. But the text was pretty much a straightforward brigade level, who shot who at Gettysburg, <laughs> and I could kind of skim through it. I, I know where Sickles put his divisions around the P torch. I don't have to read it again. This book, I had to read every page because I had no idea what was going to happen next, uh, where this guy was going to go. I guess let's start at the beginning, or better still, start with his mother, Elizabeth Oaksmith, or Oak Smith. Maybe it's two words. Oaks Smith, um, yeah, two words. It Oaks Smith. Um, it, so she's was at one time a famous writer, but again, no longer known. Yeah. I'm convinced that if the story that happened in this book hadn't happened, we would still know her the way we know Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, Elizabeth Oak Smith was born in Maine. She came from, I guess, a you know, a middling type family. She really wanted an education, but her mother wanted to marry her off early. And so she ended up getting married when she was 16 to a man who was named Seba Smith, who was about twice her age and was a journalist in, in Maine. And she helped her husband with this newspaper. And her husband actually created a, a figure that I think some of your listeners might be familiar with. His name was Jack Downing. And Jack Downing was this sort of fictional advisor to Andrew Jackson who would go to Washington, D.C. and tell the president, you know, what he needed to do. And everyone, as I researched this, I found that everyone in 19th century loved the Jack Downing stories. And it didn't matter if you were a Whig or a Democrat. So Abraham Lincoln loved him, Gideon Wells loved him, Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay and Daniel Webster all loved him. Everybody loved this guy. And so Elizabeth is married to her husband, Seba Smith. But she also has this longing to push for women's rights. And so she becomes a very prominent uh, orator and poet and lecturer and essayist in the first wave feminist movement, advocate for suffrage in particular. And one of the ways you can see just how assertive she was, her maiden name was Elizabeth. Her middle name was Oaks and her maiden surname was Prince. And then she marries this guy, Smith. And she starts going by Elizabeth Oaks Smith. And at some point in the 1840s, for whatever reason, whether it was her feminist feelings about her name or she thought her husband's last name Smith was too boring, for whatever reason, she got the state of New York to smush together her middle name and her husband's surname and to make up a new last name, Oaksmith. And so that's what all of her sons then bore as their surname. So... Appleton Oaksmith grows up 
uh, with this in, in a public environment that is, you know, father's a journalist, mother's a journalist and, and activist and writer. Uh, he, like so many young men of this era, goes goes off to sea. Uh, I guess the Oaksmiths don't have a lot of money. It's not like he's going to grow up wealthy or anything. Uh, so he sets off off to sea. And the first part of the book, I'm thinking, this is like uh, like Richard Henry Dana. And then sure enough, mm-hmm. uh, he shows up. Uh, and listeners, you've read Two Years Before the Mast, or if you haven't, you'll want to read it this week. It's a great book uh, about seafaring in this era. And it, it's no easy journey to get to California uh, in a sailing ship. Uh, right. But, but he, 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 he sails all over the place. He does. He takes his first ship uh, journey by sea when he's 16. He goes to China on a merchant ship. In the 1840s, he's hanging out in New York with his mother and in these literary circles where Edgar Allan Poe is there and Horace Greeley and all these really prominent writers who were close with her. He has, Appleton has some sort of romance that goes wrong at the end of the 1840s. And so he takes to the sea again and he goes around South America and he winds up in in San Francisco during the gold rush. And he thought that the gold rush and San Francisco would be where he would spend the rest of his life. But there was a lot of crime in San Francisco and a lot of arson. And this vigilance committee took control of the area trying to root out the arsonists. And Appleton was really put off by sort of the crime, but then the extra legal ways of dealing with it. And so he headed back to sea. So he ends up in in South America and you describe a voyage he makes to the the coast of Africa, and he goes uh, up the the Congo River, which uh, is just a fascinating place. Uh, just how how massive and powerful that river is, how far out to sea the fresh water goes, uh, and how difficult it is to sail up the river. But he does that, and at this point, readers listeners are thinking well what's he doing in africa why does anyone go to africa in the 1850s if not to participate in the slave trade but it's not clear that that's what he's doing there at this point at least it was i i was he there on a slaving journey in uh, when when he gets the help from the British ships. Yeah, I love the way you put it in the intro, first as the Forrest Gump of the 19th century, yeah. because he really does touch every moment. But then second, it is, it's a little unclear at different times what actually he's doing or did. So as he left San Francisco, he acquired a ship, he's going around South America, and in his journal, he writes about trying to find a cargo that will take him back to his family in New York. He winds up finding a cargo with a Portuguese company in Rio de Janeiro, and that sends him to the west coast of Africa. And I have little doubt that the Portuguese were involved in slave trading in this particular moment, although the the, Port- the the Brazilian slave trade was pretty much shut down after 1850, but there were still some remnants of it. I don't believe, though, that he was involved in a slave trading voyage on this this particular trip. It's 1852. He crosses the ocean. He gets to the coast of Africa. And as soon as he gets there, he encounters two British ships from the Africa Squadron. And under international law and the treaties that were in existence at that time, he did not have to allow the British sailors onto his ship. 
And they, if they had forced them, themselves onto his ship, it would have created an international incident. But he welcomes them on, and you have to imagine that they looked around a bit and probably didn't see evidence of slave trading. And I went through the British National Archives records and found that one of these ships had captured a slave trader, a British slave trader, or someone flying a non-American flag, I should say, a week earlier. So they were good at catching ships when they encountered them. I don't think they saw the evidence. And Appleton winds up trying to make it onto the Congo River, but the current is so strong that he gets beached. And at that point, 3,000 African warriors come up along the shoreline and start attacking his ship. And he's just a sitting duck. There's nothing he can do. The Portuguese who are aboard his ship get off the boat and he's sitting there. And the only thing that saves his life are the British come back and they unload the cargo. It lifts the vessel and he's able to then uh, go free. And this actually creates international news. Newspapers around the Atlantic world report on what they call the Battle of the Congo. Well, you, I mean, it's it's quite an exciting chapter. You described the, the the warriors on the shore firing muskets. The British ships occasionally fire a cannon onto the shore to try to drive them away. They lend a cannon to uh, to Appleton's ship. But you mentioned something about respecting flags of other countries. At this point in the 1850s, the slave trade. Uh, the international slave trade is illegal as far as both the United States and Great Britain are concerned, but they're not allowed the, – the British uh, – the, the United States is not allowing British warships to look inside American ships. That Only the U.S. Navy can do that. That's right. So, Americans have this memory of the War of 1812, where the British mm. and, and before, where the British had been impressing American sailors, going onto American ships and forcing American merchantmen into the British Navy. And so when they when they negotiate the Webster-Ashburton Treaty in 1842, the Americans will not concede the right of search. They won't allow British ships to search. And the British had negotiated treaties with most of the rest of the Atlantic world. So they could search other nation ships, but not until Lincoln is in office in 1862 will the British be allowed to search American vessels as well. So there, there's... The fact that these British ships are helping him escape his plight when his ship is, is beached and the uh, the Africans are attacking it does suggest that, that he he's not outfitted as a slave ship. So he makes it back. He gets back to the United States. And then because he has to be involved in everything that goes on, he gets involved in filibustering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know our listeners are, are not – are, are aware that it's not the Senate parliamentary tactic we're talking about, but the, the sort of individual adventurers going off to Central or South America to try to establish their own, I, I don't know, empires? Uh, yeah, they, they wanted to create a, a nation in Nicaragua, and William Walker mm-hmm. tries to do that, ultimately unsuccessfully. And Appleton Oaksmith is one of his chief lieutenants, goes to Nicaragua, then goes to the United uh, goes to cap the capital in Washington, D.C., and tries to get recognized as the ambassador. And the administration doesn't go along. The Fillmore administration doesn't go along with it. But he he's part he's at the center of that sort of movement. And then also the Cuban liberation movement in the 1850s, too. So he's he's he knows people. Uh for a guy who's not 
Well, I guess his, his mother's well known. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not wealthy, but but he certainly seems to to know people, uh, and he seems to be right around the edge of trouble continuously in this book. Uh, uh, if if not actually trading slaves in this first voyage, uh, he does get involved in sending arms down to Cuba, uh, or or for the expedition that will take over Cuba. The, how how guilty is he at this point? He's certainly guilty of doing that, and he absolutely lied in public about what he was doing. He outfitted se- or several ships in New York to send down in- to Cuba, and he had them just basically circling around in the Gulf of Mexico and in the Caribbean area to until he could get further orders to them. But they ended up getting captured and, and sent to federal court. There's no doubt in my mind he was he was doing that. So. He ends up surviving, unlike William Walker, he ends up surviving the filibuster era. Uh, then we get to the secession winter, and here he's he's playing a, a, a medium-sized role, maybe, in, in New York City, which is notoriously uh, pro-South, Copperhead, Democratic uh, in its politics in the Civil War era. But he's leading some mass meetings that are in favor of supporting the Union in the, the winter of 1860-61. How important a figure is he in, in New York politics at this time? He's not a, a terribly important figure. I think he sees himself as an important figure. He gets mm. involved in the Tammany Hall political machine, and he doesn't rise to the level of being a chief or a, a sachem of, of Tammany Hall, but he's a mid-level functionary. And in January of 61, he's trying to organize these meetings, these mass meetings that will issue resolutions on behalf of the Union. And then he also tries to become an emissary to the South and to travel to try to negotiate a peaceful resolution of the of of the situation without going to war and he tries to get William Seward involved in this and Seward at that point is a senator from New York he's going to go on to become Lincoln's secretary of state and a really important figure in the book which readers mm-hmm. you know they don't know yet in 1860-61 and he writes several letters to Seward asking him to participate in these union meetings and Seward of course is a republican he's a Tammany Hall democrat and he says you know we can cross party lines to do this but he, as part of the invitation to Seward, he sends these, you know, statements of pro-South, pro-slavery viewpoints that Seward would never sign on to. And mm-hmm. Oaksmith says, can you agree to these, you know, that the South has been wronged, that they should have this right <laughs> to slave owning and so forth. And so Seward just ignores him. And these these meetings end up going nowhere. He ends up looking something like a fool in, in one of them, a, a guy who goes on to become something of a, a famous officer during the war. He just had a biography recently named Billy Wilson, who was this sort of pugnacious you know, bare knuckle boxer in New York City goes to these meetings and starts calling Appleton out saying, you know, mm. do you really have the support from the Buchanan administration that you claim you do? And Appleton has to, you know, ultimately concede that he's not as important of a figure in these meetings as he thinks he is. And and then somewhat abruptly, we find he's under arrest, uh, yeah. indicted for being a slave trader. Uh, he's trying to hire a ship that he claims is, is being outfitted for a whaling voyage 
at a time when the whaling industry seems to be dying out. So it's a little suspicious right there. Uh, and the, the uh, federal agents decide, no, that's going to be a slave ship. And they seize it. They arrest him. He ends up in uh, uh, Fort Lafayette prison. Does not sound like a nice place. Uh, the, 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 well, here's a spoiler alert, listeners, because let me ask the big question. So has he actually been slave trading for the previous five or six years since we left him in Africa to the time we pick him up in New York City? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. And, you know, I to be precise, he was arrested – well, he was convicted of outfitting ships for the slave trade. And so mm-hmm. the, what I – think is if he was doing it, he was arrested before he actually carried it out. I I haven't found evidence that he was involved in the slave trade before that point. And so he he's flat broke by the end of the 1850s. His family Mm -hmm. tries to start a magazine. It goes nowhere. And he starts working with a fish oil factory owner on Long Island. And for some reason, in 1861, he and this fish oil factory owner claim that they need whale oil for their factory. And so Appleton starts buying vessels for old whaling vessels for to buy to hunt whales. And there, that looks really suspicious in 1861 because petroleum had been discovered in 1859 in Pennsylvania. And so the whaling oil industry is just tanking at this point. And so actually the people who sell him the ship in New York, the Augusta, they sell him the ship, they pocket the money, and then they go to the federal government, the federal authorities in New York City, and they say, by the way, we think this guy is on a slaving voyage, and that's what's going to then lead to his arrest. Well, we will find out what happens to him, uh, trial, conviction, and, and what follows. Uh, when we come back, and maybe the title will give us a clue what's going to happen next, because the title is Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. It's written by Jonathan W. White, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. We're talking about tonight with Jonathan W. White, author of Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. Our protagonist, Appleton Oaksmith, when we left him at the end of the last segment, has been arrested and is being held uh, in Fort Lafayette Prison. Uh, accused of outfitting ships for the illegal slave trade in 1861. And he gets moved up to uh, Fort Warren uh, in in Boston Harbor. Uh, I I gather the the prosecutors think they've got a better case. They've got another ship case against him up there, and the jury might do better uh, in Boston. But Fort Warren sounds like a not the worst place to be held. Like, you get wine with dinner, uh, if he had the prisoner. money. Okay, so so it's not so, – so he's doing okay there. Yeah, so he's imprisoned up in Fort – so he's originally arrested in New York, and like you suggested, they, they worried about the prosecution of a case there because New York was such a southern city. And they also suspect him of being part of this ship called the Margaret Scott that had been purchased in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And so they transfer him up to Fort Warren. And when he gets there, he's imprisoned with, you know, half the Maryland state legislature, all these people who'd been arrested in September of 61. They don't really want to have much to do with him because they don't want to be connected with a slave trader. And so they really ostracize him. But in reading their diaries, you get the sense in Fort Warren, it wasn't so bad. If you if you had money, you could buy things that people from town would bring you. And then at Christmas time, people from Boston brought goods to the the prisoners there as well. Then he ends up being released, but then immediately arrested by the state authorities who put him in the Charles Street Jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've spent time in the Charles Street Jail, I gather, from the introduction. I have, fortunately, as a customer and not a prisoner, though. In 1973, the uh, federal judge ruled that the jail had to be shut down because it was in such horrific condition. And it eventually was closed, I think, a few decades later. And then a little while ago, opened up as a luxury hotel in Boston called the Liberty Hotel. And I, I've tried to figure out where Appleton's cell was. And I think it was at a, it, where a restaurant in the hotel now is located, a restaurant called Clink. And so I've had dinner, I've had dinner there once and lunch there once when I went to Boston for research trips. Nice. So you you may have been dining in his cell, for all we know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's the the lighter side, I guess, of being in prison. And at, at the time, the Charles Street Jail was actually a very modern uh, uh, example of the prison reform movement in the United States. But in February of 1862, he, uh, Oaksmith has to be aware that the administration is no longer so gentle with slave traders. Uh, this is the date of the the execution of Nathaniel Gordon, and and uh, listeners probably remember that that was one of the few famous cases where where Abraham Lincoln did not issue a pardon uh, for a, a, a capital crime. He said he was willing to see that slave trader 
be executed. But you tell us more about Gordon and, and, and Lincoln. Um, the, the, the surface story is that's an example of Lincoln being harsh towards slave traders. That's not the whole story, though. Yeah, I as I said, originally, I wanted to write a history of the, the slave trade during the Civil War and try to capture the totality of how Lincoln dealt with that. And even mm-hmm. though I decided to focus on a biography of Appleton Oaksmith in the end, I wanted to bring some of those other aspects into it. And on the one hand, I try to use the story to show just how thoroughly Lincoln was set on destroying the slave trade. So he suspends the writ of habeas corpus in 1861, and that actually is the initial justification for arresting Appleton Oaksmith. And so, mm. you know, a lot of people see that as an unconstitutional or illegal action on his part, but that's how Lincoln is able to get Oaksmith in prison. And then, as we'll talk about probably in a little bit, he tries mm. to go after Oaksmith violating international law in another way later. Um mm-hmm. And he executes Nathaniel Gordon, really showing people he's serious about destroying the slave trade. At the same time, I have a chapter on pardon cases, and Lincoln was not always as harsh with other people as he had as he was with Nathaniel Gordon. So he actually pardoned several people who had been convicted of slave trading, uh, but but they're not. But Gordon's case is a lot clearer. It, the Gordon case got a lot of publicity, so I'm picturing Oaksmith um, in the Charles Street Jail being aware that mm-hmm. this could be his fate. Well, t- it couldn't be his fate. Gordon was captured with 897 Africans on board his ship. The, he, there was no doubt of his mm-hmm. crime, and he was caught in the act. He was convicted of piracy for the mm-hmm. actual act of slave trading because they captured Appleton as he was trying to sail off of Long Island, they couldn't actually go after him for slave trading. So the worst he would have gotten was five years in prison for outfitting a ship for the slave trade. So he could be convicted. And indeed, you you describe the trial, and and he is convicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and a a heavy fine put on him, which he can't possibly pay. Uh, His family has no money. Right. So... So he's going to spend maybe an indefinite amount of time in jail unless uh, he decides to walk away. Mm-hmm. How, how how does he escape from this modern escape-proof prison where even the guards are locked in at night? Yeah, it's a it's another million-dollar question you have for me, Jerry. <laughs> I wish I knew. There was a federal grand jury investigation that looked into – how he might have possibly done it. And they issued a 50-page report with all sorts of testimony from all the guards. And I poured through all of that material. And I have a chapter on the escape where I lay out different possibilities. Ultimately, we'll never know how he did it. His children, who were still alive in the 1950s, said that he dressed up as a woman and walked out. I don't believe that was true. One of the things that was most heartbreaking for me as a researcher in this book is that one of his descendants reached out to me a number of years ago, Mm. and she told me she had a memoir that he wrote, but she would not let me see it. And so Ah. I always wondered if maybe in there he talked about how he actually did it. My hunch is that he didn't go into his cell one night. They would often let him hang out in the central guard area and read newspapers and talk and so forth. And they just sort of trusted him. And my hunch is that one night 
he set up his bed his bed to look like he was asleep in it but he didn't actually go in it he probably hid somewhere somewhere in the jail they closed his door he hung out all night and then in the morning when they set up for the kitchen duty he probably escaped out of a window and then over a wall they found a ladder set up the next morning so he probably used that ladder to get over the over the wall but we'll never know for sure if that's how he did it wow that's uh so, so he's on on the lamb now, and, and you you mentioned in the book that family tradition says he went up to Portland, Maine, but uh, you make the comment family tradition is often not accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, where did he really go? Yeah, so he really went to Cuba, and he had a brother who was living in Havana, and so by October of 1862, it's reported in the papers that he's down in Havana, and he recuperates his health for a while, and it's interesting because he had been pro-union in January of 61, but by Mm -hmm. now he is very bitter, he sees himself as having been mistreated, and he becomes pro-Confederate. He wrote poetry throughout his whole life, and in 63, 64, he's writing pro-Confederate poetry, but even more than that, he becomes a blockade runner, running the blockade between Mm -hmm. Havana and Galveston, Texas. And he has these incredible, as fast as they could be, high-speed chases on the Gulf of Mexico (laughs) and almost gets captured at one point. But he slips overboard into a little boat as the Union blockading uh, blockaders are are trying to board his ship, floats around the the Gulf of Mexico for a while until he winds up back in Havana. So the Union government knows he's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal government knows he's there. There's a consul in, in Havana. He knows that Oaksmith is there. The obvious solution today would be ask the government to extradite him. He, he's a convicted criminal. He's escaped from jail. But you point out that the United States and Spain don't have an extradition treaty. So there's no way to for the Spanish authorities to, to get him. But then, uh, and, and you alluded to this a moment ago, the Spanish want one of a, a slave trader who has gotten up into New York City. They'd like to get him back. So Secretary of State Seward just has him kidnapped and sent back. Yep. Uh, it's it, a, this is. Or go ahead. It, it, it's shocking. It is, and it roils Lincoln's cabinet. I mean, they are uh, Seward is behind this, but the the mm-hmm. more conservative members of the cabinet are horrified by this. So, this was something I, in a way, I owe to Mark Neely, who you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Mark wrote a book called Lincoln and the Democrats a few years ago, and in the book, he wrote about this Cuban slave trader named Jose Augustus Arguelles, Augustin Arguelles, and Arguelles had kidnapped and sold into slavery a number of Africans who had been illegally brought to Cuba. And he was ca- he was caught doing it, but he escaped from Cuba, went to Manhattan with his wife and a lot of money. And so the Spanish government, the Cuban government, really wanted him back. And the Americans wanted Appleton Oaksmith back. And so I am 100% convinced that Seward and the Spanish minister got together in Washington and they said, look, you kidnap our guy, we'll kidnap your guy, and we'll swap. And so the U.S., the same U.S. Marshal who had arrested Appleton Oaksmith in 61 in New York ends up arresting Arguelles in Manhattan, sends him back to Cuba where he gets 19 years at hard labor. The Cuban police show up at the home where Appleton is is staying, and somehow he had been tipped off to the fact that they were coming. And so they, they break in in the middle of the night. 
they get this very sick man out of bed, but it turns out it's not Appleton, it's his brother, and somehow Appleton makes another escape. Again, he's like uh, another movie I was thinking of besides Forrest Gump was Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Uh, where the guy just keeps on keeps on running. Uh, there's there's more in this book. He he gets away. He gets a divorce from his wife in New York, but it's from Adams County, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, readers, you'll just have to look that one up uh, when you buy a copy of this book. He ends up after the war in. Uh, in England, Andrew Johnson is pardoning everybody right and left. Is Oaksmith able to get a pardon from Johnson? So throughout the war, Appleton's mother and his wife, soon to be ex-wife, as you mentioned, are writing to Lincoln and Seward asking them to get a pardon for Appleton. And, and Lincoln won't do it. Seward won't allow for it. Andrew Johnson is on the verge of pardoning Appleton Oaksmith, and when when his jilted ex-wife finds out, she rushes to the White House and says, my ex-husband's a scoundrel, don't do it. And the great irony is that Andrew Johnson, the guy who pardons every ex-Confederate, does not pardon <laughs> Appleton Oaksmith. He finally gets a pardon from Ulysses S. Grant in 1872. Grant, There's a huge pardon file at the National Archives where lots of people write in and claim that Appleton was innocent, and Grant becomes convinced that he was innocent and pardons him. Well, his, his story ends tragically he loses a lot of family members and and he finally passes from the scene uh in in the last two minutes let me ask again that 64 dollar question uh so so people tell grant oh he's not guilty uh was he guilty uh, of, of slave trading you know i this was the hardest part of writing the book and i had a, a number of people read it as I was in the process of writing and after I finished various drafts and and several people really pushed me to take a stand on did he do it or did he not? And I, I had a lot of reservation about saying one way or the other that he did or that he didn't. And I ultimately took the approach and some readers may like this and some readers may not. I ultimately took the approach of trying to lay out the evidence as he presented it and as his prosecutors presented it and allow the story to unfold almost as if you're you're reading about it in real time. If he was doing it in 1861, he was caught before he was able to do anything. And um, it's and there's no doubt in my mind that he was up to some nefarious things throughout his life. Whether he was involved in the slave trade, I'll never feel 100 percent sure. Yes or no. But that, so I know that's an unsatisfying answer, but it, it's a hard question. Well, but it makes for an, uh, an intriguing and and page-turning book. Listeners, decide for yourselves. Read Shipwrecked, a true story, true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. It's written by our guest tonight, Jonathan W. White. John, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.